0: Thank you um, for the worship band and for leading us in worship and preparing our hearts for this precious time of opening God's word and be instructed by it. Thank you, Adam, for those words. Um, I don't know how much I owe you for that. Uh, But funny story, uh, when I was in his class back in 2010, um, he allowed me actually to do one of my presentations entirely in Spanish. I'm originally from Argentina, and so the entire class didn't understand a thing of what I was saying. But he was actually grading me in my uh, pathos, right, on my passion and how I deliver my uh, communication or my speech. So that's Adam. So you have a, a great man here, and I'm so grateful for you and your friendship. So thank you for having me this morning, and please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And today we're going to be studying Psalm, Psalm 2. And Let me read it. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wonderful psalm. Precious psalm. Right at the beginning of the Psalter. And what are the psalms, basically? Many of us just think there are collections of, of hymns. Collection of songs. But they are more than just songs or hymns. This book actually the book of psalm provides a guide full of divine principles for the people of god by the god of the people with a message an overarching message that can be summarized in three words our god reigns our god reigns and psalm 2 here is placed right next to Psalm 1, because it essentially expands that message right from the beginning of the Psalter. It helps us understand as Christians that if we want to stand with the righteous, as Psalm 1 says, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will be living a problem-free life. It instructs us. On how to have well-being in every area of life, in spite of what actually happens to us in this fallen and broken world. And Psalm 1 and 2, which they're kind of, they function as two pillars, welcoming us into the entire collection of these Psalms. They work together and they look forward to experiencing that abundant life. In the absence of the promised king. And thus they, they serve as a, basically as a reminder of God's plan. As a reminder of God's plan. They both comfort us. They encourage us with the future hope. This eschatological hope that God will eventually establish a king that will fulfill his law. He will rule from Jerusalem over all the nation with righteousness and justice. So in the meanwhile, we keep on returning to the scripture. We keep returning to the authoritative self-expression of God for guidance and direction. Just like the righteous does in Psalm 1. Day and night. And we wait. We wait on him because God reigns as we will see in Psalm 2 this morning. But before we do, let's pray to the Lord that he will grant us understanding. Dear Lord, we come to you one more time because we need you. In our natural state, in our fallen state, we cannot understand the meaning of your word. So grant us, O Lord, spiritual eyes so that we can behold and contemplate the glories of Christ through the pages Of your word, especially this morning, Psalm 2. Assist us, O Lord. Remove from us any distractions. And please, I beg you, Lord, help us see Christ more beautiful today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now this... Psalm two is a fine, is a is a jewel, is a rare psalm, is a fine artistic piece of literary work in the form of a four act play. Each act consists of three verses, so it's pretty straightforward with different persons speaking. And through all these four acts, the answer to who is ultimately in control is inescapable and that is God our god reigns and because he reigns we praise him as we enter through this gateway into the entire collection of psalms and the first act or the first point if you are taking notes there is we will see the human rebellion human rebellion in verses 1 2 3 now you see the psalm begins quite abruptly unexpectedly with an expression of amazement, and even some sort of indignation by the psalmist. Take a look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire? Now, this initial why sets the tone for the entire psalm. It is not looking for answers nor seeking information, but rather here it is functioning as a rhetorical question. Why? It it events the psalmist's exasperation, his astonishment, at the senseless plot of the nations. The nations of the world are hatching a plan of attack. They are converging. They are gathering together in commotion as an act of defiance. And there is profound turbulence Turmoil in this meeting, which is made clear by the parallel verb that's uh, there, which says plot or devise in the second part of verse 1. And the people's plot, they devise. Now, interestingly, this verb was already used in the book of Psalm. It was used in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1. But whereas there in Psalm 1... It means to meditate, Psalm 1, 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Here, in Psalm 2, this verb has a different idea. The idea here is talking about the plan these nations are thinking it through together. Instead of dwelling earnestly in the law of the Lord as the righteous does in Psalm 1, the nations kind of us as a collective delegation of the wicked from Psalm 1, they are meditating, murmuring. They're chewing upon their act of rebellion. This is premeditated. And what they plan is said to be in vain, verse 1. They plot in vain. The psalmist is so astonished, so overwhelmed by the absurdity, of this plot that he doesn't even tell us against whom these nations are conspiring. From the get-go, actually, he just states that their defiance is without any shadow of a doubt a vain thing. Note that the emphasis here lies then in the futility of their plan. Their rebellion will surely fail. There is no hope of succeeding for them, not even a chance. It doesn't matter if the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together, as verse 2 says. This conspiracy will not prevail. Why? Why is the psalmist so low-key? After all, the idea of several kings taking counsel together or even forming a united front against someone would be a matter of concern, right? But not for the psalmist. Not for the psalmist. Take a look at the end of verse 2. Such a hostile act of rebellion, of defiance, is targeted against whom? Against the Lord and against his anointed. Against the Lord and against his anointed. This is why this whole plan is irrational for the psalmist. It doesn't make sense. But not for them. For them it makes perfect sense. And in verse 3... We're actually sort of granted access to what they are actually saying in that meeting. We can hear what they're actually saying in secret, and what they say is terrifying. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, they are not literally tied up or chained in some type of prison. If they were, they could not have been meeting to plan a rebellion. Rather, these words form an implied comparison. To them, to these nations, to these peoples, to be under the control of the Lord and his anointed is like being in prison. And just like a rebellious oxen, the nations want to cast off their yoke. They don't want Anything to do with the Lord's rule through his anointed. So they basically encourage each other with this cry of independence, and their resolution couldn't be any more clear. They want autonomy. They want autonomy, self-determined freedom. It is an open letter, an organized revolt against divine authority. And now, this makes perfect sense in light of Psalm 1. Makes perfect sense. How? Well, the anointed, which is another way of referring to the king, as we will see later in verse 6, the anointed was supposed To copy the law of the Lord and follow it continually to experience the abundant life so graciously provided to him for generations to come. Go with me to Deuteronomy 17 for a moment. Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 18 talking about the king he says when he takes the throne of his kingdom he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the levitical priest it is to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life sounds familiar someone? Day and night, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then and only then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So the anointed. The king was supposed to copy the law of the Lord, and he was, in essence, called to make the law of the Lord his delight and to meditate on it day and night, like Psalm one to says. And if he were to do that, then he would rule over the people of God in accordance to the guidance of the God of the people. It should not surprise us, then, that the kings of the earth, of Psalm 2-2, are conspiring against the anointed king. At the heart of it all, the law of the Lord, which is uphold by him, is their biggest problem. And thus, these nations, these peoples, they want to liberate themselves... Once and for all from the Lord of that law. So we see that first act, the human rebellion, verses one to three. Now let's go to the second act of this four act play. It says the divine reaction, verses four to six. The divine reaction. The psalm makes a sudden shift from the human rebellion to the reaction of the Lord. And what is the Lord's reaction? breaks out laughing he breaks out laughing at their plan of attack verse 4 such organized revolt such um, meditated organized cry of independence has a comedic effect on god so he laughs and he laughs deeply we're even told in the second part of verse 4 that he even scoffs at them In other words, this is not a laugh of pleasure. He's not taking pleasure on their act of defiance. This is a laugh of derision. The Lord mocks them. He categorically taunts these kings just as human would as something that is totally absurd and ridiculous. This Type of language is so human-like that we can almost hear the Lord from heaven saying, "Are you kidding me? Really? This is what you're planning? Why? Why? Take a close look at how the Lord is described in these verses. First, He's the one what enthroned, the one sitting." Verse 4, the one enthroned, where is he exactly sitting on? He is in heaven. Now, this is significant. In In contrast to the limited earthly realm of these rebellious kings, the earth, the reign of the Lord is over them all in heaven. He is not constrained to a particular area. He owns all of the earth and transcended all forever, so it says Psalm 29, verse 10. All of creation belongs to him, including these rebellion, rebellious little kings who have the audacity to challenge his everlasting authority, like Psalm 93, verses 1 to 2 say. Now, look, it says, first, he's described as the one sitting in heaven, the one enthroned. The second description we find of the Lord is the the term, actually, Lord. Now, this is not his personal name, Lord or Yahweh, from verse 2. Although the spelling in some some translations might be the same in English, the emphasis is very different. This is actually a title stressing his sovereignty, his lordship. He is the master of it all. He is the master and everyone else is his servant. This is why he's not trembling in fear. This is why he's not hiding in fear behind His throne counting the rebellious nations and these peoples calculating whether or not he has enough or sufficient force to counter them. No, he's not behind the throne. He's sitting on his throne because he is by nature far superior than anyone and anything else. And they are all regarded by him, as Psalm 37, verse 13, reminds us, as absolutely nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And he knows that their day is coming. So he's not afraid. And after laughing, after mocking them, the Lord does what? Are you ready? he speaks he speaks that's all he does the one enthroned in, in heaven opens his mouth to rebuke and to terrify these kings of the earth like verse 5 says he rebukes them he terrifies them these two verbs cover all the full action he addresses them directly And in doing so, he instills in them terror, terror, fear. In other words, the emphasis lies here on the effect that his very powerful words have on the rebellious nations. And in burning anger, in heated rage, the Lord talks to them. He speaks to them. Notice, there is no direct threat in here. He's rather making a declaration. He's making a statement. That's all. The Lord is not playing games here. He's not negotiating with these peoples. Nor is he adjusting to kind of suit their demands. This is not our Lord in response to their cry of independence, of their self-determined freedom that they are so desperately looking for in verse 3, the Lord just issues a decree. That's all he does. He is that powerful. And he simply shuts them up with a divine proclamation. What is that proclamation? Proclamation. Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's it. He speaks, he shuts them up with a divine proclamation. I have installed my king. Do you know what this is? This is the most assuring, the sweetest noise and voice of the entire Bible. This is the sound of divine sovereignty. And this is so reassuring to us that he speaks and his speech carries an effect that no one can counter. And the almighty God, he basically meets these nations, these rebels, reaffirming his unilateral decision to install the king of his choosing in his royal city that he set apart for himself. He affects his kingship by his ultimate sovereign authority. And this is the reason why he laughs. This is the reason why he mocks them. And this verse is, in essence, an explanation of the phrase in verse 1, in vain. Why do they plot? Why do they conspire in vain? Because no matter how well planned or powerful this organized rebellion is, it is doomed to fail, for the Lord Almighty is against it. Will not succeed. So we saw the human rebellion, verses 1 to 3. We see the divine reaction to that human rebellion in verses 4 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 9, we see the divine rule. The king now, actually, resolves to take a stand and declare by what right he rules. His right to rule is based on the Lord's decree in verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decrees. Now, this, at first glance, may seem totally insignificant. But by reciting the decree of the Lord in verses 7 to 9, he is implicitly stating that his reign is a gift from God. In other words... This king is not a usurper. His kingship is the Lord's doing. It is totally legitimate because it is granted to him by divine authority. And this is a clear reference to the Davidic covenant that promised the king sovereignty over the nations in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, at the heart, at the heart of that covenant... There is a concept of sonship that we see in verse 7, actually. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And later, we don't have time. You can go to Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and you will see that same concept in that same promise that God made to David. So here in Psalm 2, the king is elevated to a special position. There is a particular relationship between the king and the Lord. So in return, the king could actually address God as, You are my father, as Psalm chapter 89, 26 says. All rights, all privileges... Of sonship are reserved for this king and this king alone. And the immediate significance of this father son relationship, of this special status, notice, it concerns the what? The inheritance of the land. Verse 8 Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Notice that the extent of his sovereignty reaches. The nations, the ends of the earth, including, of course, the very peoples who are attempting to throw off his rule. So his rule extends through all the lands to the most remote regions on earth. There is no inch of territory existing out of the rule of this king. It is an international, a world world wide inheritance a lasting position possession obtained without any sort of payment or purchase price. it is an unconditional an eternal gift based on a divine promise a divine promise and the king is not only granted the possession of the ends of the earth but he's also given the power to break them and dash them to pieces He can break them, the nations, and dash them to pieces, these rebellious people. And the force of his sovereignty is described quite graphically. Look, verse 8, sorry, verse 9. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Here the rod most likely referred to his scepter, a symbol of power. It is a weapon. And in this case, this weapon is made of iron, which, indi- which indicates the strength of his rule. In his presence, all the nations, all the rebellion, rebellious peoples are like pottery, ready to be crushed. Ready to be smashed into little insignificant pieces in a moment. They have no chance of withstanding this king's power. The disparity between the two is obvious. And this stark contrast is between the the rule of the anointed king and the kings of the earth, notice, rests entirely in the Lord of the covenant. I mentioned previously that the word for Lord in verse 4 is different than the Lord in verse 2. However, in verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree, the psalmist returns to the personal name of Yahweh, that covenant name. And he does so to emphasize that special relationship between the king and the Lord, which is made explicit by this father-son language. In other words, the sovereignty of his rule, in verse 8, is but an extension of the Lord's sovereignty in heaven from verse 4. And this extended sovereignty is the, is the way, the channel by which the Lord deals with a conspiracy of the nations from verses 1 to 3. How does he do, how does he do it? He basically rules over the nations of the earth by installing a king with all the authority of heaven behind him that reigns in the same sphere where the rebellion is taking place three acts the human rebellion and we see this progression the divine reaction to that human rebellion then we see the divine rule is the king speaking and telling us making clear by what right is he ruling and lastly we see human responsibility in verses 10 to 12. Human responsibility. And in this final section, the psalmist speaks. And he basically draws his own conclusions. That's why there is a therefore at the beginning of verse 10. His aim is to basically resolve the tension built up through the entire psalm up to this point. And how does he plan to do that? How does he plan to resolve this tension? Well, he simply focuses on exhorting, on giving advice to the rebellious kings and the rulers of the earth. And the irony here is, if you notice, that we would expect those kings and those rulers to possess wisdom already. But they don't have it. They don't have it. They are so severely wicked, as Psalm 1 describes. They are woefully deficient, hatching a senseless plot against the Lord Almighty and his anointed king. So the first thing he does, the psalmist, is to warn them to act prudently. In verse 10 we read, be wise. Be wise. In other words, make the correct choice here. Recognize the situation for what it is and stop hoping that your plan of attack will actually succeed against God. Put an end to this irrational thought. But that's not the only thing he says. He says, be warned in verse 10 as well. This is a second advice. The idea behind here is to receive instruction and to submit to correction. Exercise your minds, the psalmist is saying. Face the implications of what you have just heard about the anointed king and learn your lesson. For that and that alone will bring you life. But he not only calls them to exercise their minds, he also calls them to exercise their wills. In verse 11, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. It means to worship him. Change your allegiance. Change your loyalties from other gods and come to the one true God. Accept the king of his choosing and you should pledge your allegiance to him and him alone. For the Lord Almighty is exercising his authority and his rule through him. Yet, he says he qualifies that. Verse 10, serve the Lord with what? With fear, with fear. And now, this may seem like a contradiction, but it is not. Worship and fear spring from faith in God. It is that conviction that God says what he means and means what he says. And a true worshiper, worshiper of the Lord then is drawn to him in Adoration and amazement because of his power and his glory. But at the same time, a true worshiper of God shrinks back and bows down precisely because of his power and glory. And this is a beautiful tension that the psalmist exhorts the rulers to have. Verse 11, we find the fourth admonition, and that is celebrate his rule. This is in essence, uh, he's intensifying what he just said. He carries the idea of submitting to the Lord with pure joy. Rejoice in him greatly. However, qualifies it again. Do it with what? With trembling. Do it with trembling. Ensuring that it's appropriate for the Lord's service. For to rejoice without fear is mere presumption. Last but not least, the psalmist asked them to kiss his son. Kiss his son in verse 12. Kiss the son in grateful and loving submission. Now, this is a symbolic act. Conquer kings would bow down before the victor and pay him allegiance and homage. This way, they would kiss him. It is a sign of true and sincere affection. There is no rebellion against the anointed king anymore. They are loving him. And he tells them, stop rebelling. For to rebel against the one is to rebel against the two. And to submit to the one is to submit to the two. And failure to submit to Him will lead to your destruction. Your way will lead to your destruction. Verse 12. But taking refuge in Him. As verse 12 says. That is taking refuge. Denotes the same idea. Submission. Submission. Taking refuge in Him. Will bring that profound sense of joy. And satisfaction that comes only from experiencing an abundant life that God intends in us through his redemptive work in spite of what actually happens to us through this fallen world. To end here, the psalmist's conclusion then can be summarized in this way. To rebel is to perish. To rebel is to perish. But interestingly... This psalm also contains a large measure of grace. And that is the second point here: To take refuge is to find blessing. So you either rebel and perish or you take refuge, you submit, and you find blessing. In other words, this is an evangelistic psalm. God's salvation is being extended to notice all nations, all nations including us today, in fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12. Salvation is being extended to all the nations. But listen carefully here. The way Psalm 2 ends, kiss his son, or he will be angry and your will will lead to destruction. It's not an invitation. This is not an invitation. This is a call to repentance. That's what it is. And this is the only antidote for human rebellion submission. Submission. You can remain in rebellion, but only, says the psalm, for a little while, and not without consequence, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. So kiss his son. Kiss his son. Yield your life to him today. You have noticed I have not answered who this son is yet. Who is this son? Well, Psalm 2 could have been applied to every Davidic king. But it ultimately applies to David's greatest son. Jesus Christ, as Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, he is the king who Psalm 2 celebrates, as we see in Acts 4. He was installed as the reigning Lord and Christ at his resurrection, as we see in Acts 13, 33, Hebrews 1, 5, Hebrews 5, 5. And although he fulfills Psalm 2, he has not yet exhausted all of its promises. The complete Fulfillment awaits Jesus' second coming when he will assume that Davidic throne and reign upon all of the earth with justice and equity, as Revelation 19.11 says. So listen to me one more time. I cannot assume here that everyone has kissed the sun. I simply can't. This is an evangelistic psalm. So I beg you this morning, kiss the son. It is wise to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, the anointed king, for there is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. You keep running, you keep rebelling. And that will lead to your destruction. And you may be sitting today as an act of submission. But your heart right there might be high up, exalted in your own self-determined thirst for total autonomy. Come to him. Come to Him today if you haven't kissed the Son. Now for those who have already kissed the Son, for those who have already placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have repented from their sins and embraced this loving King, keep kissing Him. Keep kissing the Lord. Listen, this is no one-time event. I don't care what you did 13, 5, 6 years, 5 months, 2 months ago. This is is not a one-time event. You don't just kiss him one time and then go and proceed with your life, living however you please to do. You submit to him and you keep kissing and coming down and bowing down to him. Do not presume, please. Do not presume on yesterday's kiss. on yesterday's act of submission. Do not presume that because yesterday you kiss him through faith, that's enough. Keep kissing him. Keep coming to him and placing yourself under his kingdom. Keep placing yourself under the Lord's anointed King, Jesus Christ. And you know how you do that? Just like the king would do himself. And that's why Psalm 2 is so important to understand it and to do an integrated reading with Psalm 1. Do you know how you place, how you keep on submitting, how you keep kissing the Lord's King? You follow the king's example, and that is to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Your meditation, your Bible intake will define your level of submission. Let's pray. Dear Lord, what a marvelous king we serve What a marvelous God we serve. A God who speaks and whose speech carries an effect, and whose promises from the Old Testament are brought into the new, unilateral promises to install the king. And we see, and we look back, and we see on that cross that king. And we see the resurrection and we see that king again. And yet, now we don't live in a world where that king reigns fully with justice and equity. This world is broken, faces multiple implications because of our sin results. There is death, everyone, broken relationships. And so I pray, Lord, that everyone here would first kiss you, kiss Jesus through faith. But not only that, keep on kissing him every single day of their life as an act of submission worship. Help us do do that through the reading, the meditation, application of your word, because that and that alone will create in us hearts with true worship. And that and that alone will keep us safe and hopeful until that king returns in glory and installs his kingdom on earth. And all the nations bowed out to him. And give him and give you the glory that you deserved. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray.